and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with Claire Louise Bennett about her debut novel, Checkout 19. Yeah, it's an extraordinary novel in many ways because it's it's quite unusual. There's an unnamed protagonist, and it moves through different modes of storytelling throughout. It, it sort of it moves even in, in with different subjects. Like it starts with a plural we and it goes into an I and and there's stories embedded within the stories. And there's also a lot of textual reading of different authors and different books. Yeah, there's. I don't think we talked about this much in the interview, but there's a pretty amazing section where the narrator is kind of just anchoring herself on what books she had read at a certain point, but then also which books she hadn't read you know, so it, it goes like I had read this and this and this, but I hadn't yet read this and this and this, which is kind of such an interesting device to show, you know, where a character might be at intellectually in their life, taking in what they would read in the future with what they had read at a certain point. I think that's interesting. And and also, you know, yeah, like not not something we might expect in a novel. Yeah, for sure. And I think that was a, a you know something that we talk about in the interview in terms of how Claire Louise really thinks about the novel and the things that it can do, while also considering the many, many different forms in which it has already appeared and which this narrator and I think she has already kind of digested, <laughs> digested the form and, and made it her own. So yeah, it's an interesting book and I would actually really recommend it, which I don't, we don't usually do in the intro to an interview. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, w- I would recommend it too. Do you ever um, write down books you've read, Medea? Like keeping a, keeping track? Mm-hmm. Do you ever, do you do a little journal every year of all the books that you've read? I don't do that. No. And so, which is sort of a disservice, I think sometimes in the end for me. Do you do that? No, but every year I'm like, oh, this is the year that I keep track because I, I think I do forget. You think, oh, the books that really matter to me, I'll remember, but it's not always the case. It's true. Yeah. And I mean, I really, which I, I think people who, you know, do like ebooks and stuff maybe can't really do this, but I really rely on my bookshelves as like a, oh, yeah, as a sort of archive so that I can remember what I've read and not read. It is also a constant reminder of things I have not read. Well, I don't know if it's Claire Louise because it seems like she's she's read a lot of lot. If I'm judging from this this novel, she's quite a good reading list. But let's listen to the interview and, and hear more. Let's do it. Okay. Today we're joined by Claire Louise Bennett whose new novel is called Checkout 19. Claire Louise is the author of the critically acclaimed book, Pond, a collection of 20 short stories written from the perspective of a solitary woman living in Ireland. Her short fiction essays have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Harper's, and other publications. Checkout 19 follows an unnamed young woman born into a working class family who's slowly discovering her own sense of self through the many books she reads and the stories she writes. Her development and her relationship to her own experiences is partly filtered through the work of these other writers as she eventually attends college, finds work as a checkout clerk in a grocery store, and dates a few inadequate, jealous men with literary ambitions of their own. The book seamlessly moves between literary textual analysis, fantastical storytelling, and life itself, eventually confronting the realities of sex, 
violence, and death. Claire Louise, thanks so much for joining us. So Claire Louise, I wanted to ask about this book and the kind of like very loosely, I would call it a coming of age story. I mean, in the loosest designation, but I was curious the difference between you know, pulling from a larger or writing from a much larger span of time and kind of having that that all open as opposed to your last book, which is so much more set in the present, set in a much smaller interior, the difference in writing those two kind of narratives. Yeah, there's a definite distinction there between, I suppose, the temporal dimensions of them. Pond is very much concerned with immediate experience, I suppose, immediate surroundings. And this one is much, much broader in the sweep of time that it's dealing with. And there's about five, six years difference maybe between them. And so in that time, I got older. Because <laughs> that's what happens when time passes. And what happens with that passing of time is a different relationship maybe towards time and a different relationship towards the time that's passed and one's own life. And for up to a certain point, I think one's life feels all of a piece. And then there comes a point where it kind of doesn't anymore. There's a sense that there are certain things that almost belong to a different world or a different you or something like that. And that's sort of interesting. It has a different kind of texture and you can think about it kind of differently. And maybe you can think about how it relates to your life now, because obviously it does. But you can think about it in, I guess, more objective ways. Maybe it's not quite as painful in a way. There's a kind of a distance, I suppose. And you're not writing so much from within that space of experience. And I think what came with that distance was being able to see all the different factors that had contributed, I suppose, to my own life. Maybe factors that I had been a bit reluctant, perhaps, to acknowledge to some degree. I mean, I think with maybe Pond and some of the projects in Pond was, in both books really, is a sort of a, a bid for freedom. But at the same time, that's sort of a tussle I have and I've always had, you know, to what degree are we really able to act with our own volition and to what extent are we free and to, and to what extent has my life been really shaped from things that are beyond my control? So those were things that I was interested in in looking at. So yeah, there was a, a degree of tracing things back to certain roots and fundamental kind of circumstances. Can you tell us a little bit about the roots of this book and where it begins? Part of the roots here are just in a more literal sense are a working class background, a family, and then a sense of not belonging is like the most basic sort of like a description for it, a sense of otherness at school. What do you think are some of the fundamental roots of the character in this book? Well, yeah, there's the situation, as you have described, the working class environment, which is really significant and is perhaps something that I started to think about more when I was spending more time in England. I don't live in England anymore. I haven't lived there for quite a long time. And I hadn't really thought too much about that aspect of my identity because it's just not something that people really pick up on here in Ireland. They can't really place me in that sort of way. It's not to say there isn't a class system here because there is. It's just I'm not really part of it. I've enjoyed a freedom 
on that level. And I hadn't really realized it or appreciated it to what degree, actually. And it was only when really I started to go back to England when my first book was published. And I began to go over as a writer then. I wasn't just going over to see family or whatever. I was going over in a certain capacity and I was moving in certain circles, really, you know, literary circles and so on. And aren't really that many kind of working class people in that demographic, to be honest with you. So it just made me very aware of that, really. And it made me think about, I suppose, my relationship to writing and how it shaped that and how it shaped my relationship to books and how I discovered books. And I think maybe coming from, for example, then coming from a working class environment, I think you can have quite romantic ideas about literature and about what it can do. And you can have fairly dreamy ideas. And we can see some of that kind of coming through in the book. So that seemed like an important thing to explore, really. You know, in the book, there's this refrain about the fastest growing town in England over and over, that there's this sense of economic promise, but then there's also just the sense of total utility, like being in school, studying, it's not going to change anything for these people, you know, in terms of their class. And books, on the other hand, are these things that seem to offer the character the entire world that offers the character much more than themselves that are these things that are a connection to this whole. And even there's a beautiful line where they're like copying some lines from another book. And it's like, even just to get down one line can just kind of ignite something. So the books are such a powerful talisman and such a powerful realm in this book. I wonder if you could talk about that, how essentially this is really a book about someone discovering literature. I think it's, yeah, it's about discovering literature and it's about through that discovery. Like you said, literature is providing a space that the immediate reality isn't giving. Yeah, it's very prosperous economically, which puts a pressure on her then because there's really no reason for her not to be, you know, employed and stuff. There's plenty of, you know, so-called opportunity, but it's nothing that she can really engage with or is interested in at all. So literature opens up a different, I suppose, sense of the world. And she just reads about, I guess, other people's experiences of being in the world. And I don't know whether she necessarily aspires to any of those conditions particularly. It just certainly opens things up for her and it gives her grounds maybe to not necessarily be entirely convinced that what she is told is life, real life, is she's being shown something else. And then that obviously creates a tension and a difficulty. So while there's a lot of imaginary things that go on and alluded to and more than that expressed in the book, reality very often then breaks in. And sometimes in quite distressing and upsetting ways. So there's always this tension, I think, between her reality and the imagination. And literature is somewhere in there, massaging this tension sometimes, you know, and sometimes helping her to kind of cope with it too. I'm curious about your reading life. How did it begin? How did it develop? Where is it now? My reading life began, well, I guess similar really to what's been described in the book. It was a bit haphazard, I think. I remember my mother reading to me 
I remember her reading Bible stories to me. We weren't a religious family, but I think she liked the book. It had quite nice illustrations in it. And I quite liked the character of, of Jesus. I thought he was a character, really. And they were quite nice kind of stories. And then I, I kind of thought about Jesus for quite a while then, but not really as the son of God. <laughs> I don't know how I thought about him. Just like a friend or so, you know, and I would maybe sometimes talk to him and, and that just sort of fizzled out like a relationship or something. And then, yeah, I guess it was just quite haphazard, really. And I read a lot of trashy books and stuff like that. And then I remember a certain point realizing that there were, were books that were quite special and quite important and that this was literature. That was quite a distinct thing. It's interesting in the book, she goes through periods of reading men, a lot of what are considered classics, and then eventually begins reading women and the focus sort of shifts to more women writers. And I was curious if your understanding of literature when you first had it was mostly of these of the men that you were reading, because I think it, it allows her then to sort of start thinking about other ways in which her life might be circumscribed by various tropes, even in books. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know whether I really ever made that connection in a way, because I suppose, I mean, I know they're written by men, but at the same time, there have been some fabulous female characters written by men, which, no, I didn't necessarily feel that weight of the canon and it being written by white elderly. And I know that is the case, and I know much of it is written by. That wasn't something that I, I don't think anyway, I ever felt. I don't know what hindered by or misrepresented by. Because I mean, I loved D.H. Lawrence, actually. And it's been years, though, since I've read him. Maybe his depictions of women are dreadful. I'm not sure now, really. I think maybe more of an issue for me is to do with class, really, how class is represented in a way. There's also a, an insistence in this novel on the materiality of books. There's like a lot of description of the way we read, the way we approach the right page, Versus the left page, you know, a beautiful image of a beetle like crawling on a book. The books are things first and foremost. And I wondered about that element, that wanting to depict that sense. Yeah, that comes at the beginning. And that was part of a different piece that I'd been working on for quite some time. I'd been trying to work with this first person plural for quite a long time, like for ages. And I wrote reams and reams like about, I don't know what it was about now really, but anyway, I just, I kind of snatched that part from it. And I enjoyed maybe putting that at the beginning of the book because obviously then it's a way of drawing attention to what the reader is at that moment doing, reading a book. And I mean, one of the things that if you're writing well, or one of the aims of good writing is to transport the reader so that they forget that they're reading a book in a way. I kind of enjoy really focusing on and providing almost a commentary to what they were doing as they were doing it, the left page and the right page. The sensation that you have, the physical sensation that you have while you're reading. And there's various ways in the book that draws it back to making the reader aware that they are reading. I don't really want like the story to shout louder than the words in a way. I want it always to be a sense of, I am reading and these are words. I don't know why that's so important to me, but I've never really endeavored to sort of write something that was, you know, like realistic or 
convincing or I never really saw that as being very, a very noble aim in a way. I don't know why, because it is words on a page and I have no difficulty treating it like that, really. Well, I do have some difficulties sometimes. <laughs> it's not always that straightforward. But I think that's why sometimes, you know, the punctuation kind of shifts and so on, because I get into a bit of a funk with it then. And I think, well, what is the function of this now? It's like if you say a word over and over again, it becomes sort of odd and strange and alien. You know, it's like using punctuation. There becomes a point where you sort of become untethered from it and not quite sure what its role is anymore. Things like that. And I include, I include that, you know, I include those moments when I lose my grip on certain facets or certain devices of my medium, you know. I don't go back over and well, I do, of course, go back over and sometimes I take out more away. You know, it's not like I just write it out and that's it. Not at all. And also, I just kind of liked that idea. And I kind of remember that, you know, just having a book and just not reading it for ages. And it would have a certain sort of power or something. I mean, I don't know. Lots of people have lots of books by their bed that they haven't read yet, don't they? There's a thing of books to read. Is that what people say? And it's quite funny having a stack of books you haven't read next to your bed. I think you're asking for trouble or something. It doesn't feel like a very good idea to me to have that many unread books near your head when you're sleeping. (laughs) I wouldn't go in for that. I have a couple, but I wouldn't want a whole pile of them. (laughs) I have a few that I've read and that feels a little better to be going to bed next to. That's wise advice. More (laughs) synchronicity that way. I just want to follow up on something you're saying about kind of a certain form of realism, which is not quite it's not necessarily that it's more realistic, but it's more kind of a, an accepted convention of drama and story and that you don't really do that here hardly at all. And I think it's both interesting that lots of the books that the character is recalling are books that do, are much more conventional, you know, dramatic books that have long stories that unfurl and that those have been powerful, but yet there's a certain rejection of that form of writing and that style. And then I'm curious too that this is defined as a novel, what we're reading, yet it doesn't, I can't say it's a very novelistic book in that it is fragmented and there's kind of one story underneath, but there's so many different iterations of it. So I guess I'm curious about both things, like that the influence has been a lot of stories that are more conventional and then placing this book as a novel when it isn't very novelistic and if that was important to you to have this as, you know, defined as novel or is it kind of just happenstance that that's what it was called? No, no, it's not happenstance. It is a novel. I feel very strongly that it's a novel. I think historically ideas about the novel have been and what it can do and what it can be have been more, much more interesting than they are now. I think we're in a particularly quite conservative phase of what we think about in terms of a novel and what's novelistic. I think go back a few hundred years and before that even, when I guess the form started to kind of break away and separate itself from, say, the epic form, part of that move, part of that transition involved incorporating subjective experience and memoir. This was happening in Greek literature and in Roman literature and so on. And maybe then I guess it entered a phase, I guess we associate it with the Victorian period, maybe, where it had a sort of particular social function, maybe, and it was uh, filling certain functions there that then I think have become synonymous in people's minds about what a novel is and how it should work. And that's become sort of prescriptive in a sense. But 
I think the novel is much richer than that. I don't think it's something that is fixed or set in stone. I think it's an evolving form. And I think it will evolve as more and more voices are heard. I think that's an important part of its development. In recent years, in the last decade or so, we're hearing voices from different parts of society that we haven't really heard before. So I guess it follows then, you know, that the novel as a form will start to really shift and move and become really, really interesting and and let in experiences that are, you know, fragmented or layered or because I think really, unless you grow up in a pretty privileged family, your life isn't really going to take a very linear form where one thing just leads to another. For a lot of people's life, it's not really like that. There's a lot of stopping and starting. There's a lot of full starts and so on. So I think probably we'll see that reflected more and more. And there will probably come a point when we'll look back on those very sort of so-called conventional novels and think, my God, they're so weird. Why did they ever write like that? (laughs) That makes no sense. (laughs) I think so. I think maybe. I think there will come a point. And that happens. I mean, I would go so far as to say that this novel is actually kind of suspicious of linear narrative. There's a chapter at the end of which there's a relationship that the main character has with a poet named Dale, and they have a a violent sexual encounter. But one of the chapters ends with, well, Dale always had a better sense of narrative than her. And so there's a way in which narrative is tied to this person who's a poet, Mm -hmm. shouldn't really (laughs) have that good sense of, of narrative and a sort of violence. That there's like some kind of connection between linearity and story and an act of violence. Yes, Dale, you're not a very good poet. The idea there of him having a greater sense of narrative, it's a comment on his ability to interpret life and make meaning. And that's something that happens if you're a student of literature. What you're learning is how to interpret text and give meaning to text. And you're looking at various devices that the author is using in order for certain meanings to be conveyed. So you're looking at, you know, metaphor and all the rest of it. And if you're looking at that and you're thinking in those sorts of terms and meaning-making ways, kind of day in, day out over two or three years, the inference here is that He's taking it a step further and he's looking at life as if it were a text to be interpreted and meaning to be made. And things can get dangerous if you do that, if you cannot separate life from literature. So even though, yeah, this is very much about life lived through books and connection to literature and all the rest of it, it's also saying there can be a danger in that because life isn't, it isn't a book. So that's prior to that, she says, we were not on the same page, right? And that leads to a pretty catastrophic event between the pair of them. And then following that, there's another fairly dramatic, unpleasant encounter that she has. And it's as if she sees it for what it is. She discovers a man in the forest who has hung himself. But it's as if Dale can't, can't see it. He sees that as a symbol of something a comment on something about their relationship or something in her that draws her towards bad things or bad things towards her. And so at that point, she is kind of saying, look, 
enough now. This is actually a dead man in a tree. It's not a metaphor. And they part company. That's kind of where that was coming from. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Clara Louise Bennett, author of Checkout 19. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're thrilled to have Isaac Butler back with us today. Isaac is the author of The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, and he's here today to give us this week's book recommendation. So Isaac, what book are you recommending? I am going to recommend Amanda Vale's Somewhere, The Life of Jerome Robbins. Jerome Robbins is a very important figure in both Broadway history and the history of American ballet. He was also part of the inaugural class of the Actors Studio. Listeners are probably familiar with him as the guy who directed, conceived, and developed West Side Story and Fiddler on the Roof. And, you know, had he only done that, Dayenu, but he also is uh, responsible for all sorts of incredibly interesting work as he tried to take this, you know, classical form of ballet and make it really relevant and present to America in its in its moment. And he lived long enough that he becomes, over the course of the book, a kind of zelig figure popping up here and there. I mean, he was actually like a huge, huge, huge cultural force who mentored lots of people, both mainstream and avant-garde. And he was a very fragmented person. He didn't have like a coherent self. And that's actually what a lot of his life story is about. It's about him trying to figure out how to make himself cohere, or maybe he's happy not being coherent. And that is rich, rich subject matter for a biography. And uh, Amanda Vale just researched the bejesus out of it. It's And she's also a great sentence level writer. So it's a really, really delightful, fun book. You will learn a lot about the performing arts in America uh, in the 20th century through it. So that is Somewhere, uh, The Life of Jerome. Robbins. I have to say, Isaac, you're really making me feel like I'm pulling the bad gay card for not even knowing who Jerome Robbins was, <laughs> um, even though obviously I'm familiar with most of the musicals that you're, that you're talking about. Montgomery Clift's ex-lover. I mean, you know. Oh my God, that even more is embarrassing. This is embarrassment <laughs> on top, piled on top of embarrassment. So let me just ask you, did you know this stuff about uh, Jerome Robbins' history or kind of biography before you read the book? Or was this a way of discovering the kind of persona behind some of the most enduring and high-profile musicals in American history? I knew it a little bit. I didn't know okay. any, I didn't know any of the ballet stuff to be completely honest, right? I also didn't know that he was like in the Catskills doing sketch comedy with Danny Kaye before Danny Kaye was famous or you know all this other stuff. Wait, what like, from sketch comedy to to big Broadway musicals? He was like do summer vaudevilles. You know, when he was like oh, okay, a, when okay. he was like a young man, he was doing summer vaudevilles and, you know, Danny Kaye was one of the other people there. And then he was sort of Balanchine's, he had this sort of difficult but complex father-son relationship with Balanchine and, you know, all these other things. So I knew some of it, in particular the parts of it that I had researched because they were relevant to my book. And if you watch, like PBS had a documentary about Jerome Robbins, but if I remember correctly, it's really focused on his Broadway stuff and his friendship with Sondheim and, you know, all sorts of other things like that. One of the most amazing stories about him, actually, if you don't mind my going on about this, is... Sure, please. You know, when they're doing a funny thing happen on the way to, a for- to the forum. He did not direct a funny thing happen on the way to the forum. And it's dying on the road. And so they bring Robbins in to show doctor it. And Robbins shows up and he goes, oh, 
the audience doesn't know this is a comedy because everyone's walking around in togas. And so like, they just don't know that they're going <laughs> to see a comedy. You have to write a song at the beginning that just tells them it's a comedy. And Sondheim goes and he writes Comedy Tonight, which is the sort of very famous prologue of the show where Zero Mostel goes on and he he lists all the tragic things they're not going to do and then talks about, hey, tragedy tomorrow, comedy tonight. And then Robbins, you know, just spends a couple days with Zero Mostel and choreographs this incredibly complicated kind of commedia dell'arte opening where there's all these kind of magic tricks and jokes and prop comic and stuff. And it becomes a hit and then he, you know, goes home. <laughs> Having done his job, he wanders back into the wilderness. So, um, I mean, he's a really, really fascinating figure. So I knew the theater side of him, but I did not know the ballet side of him. And I did not quite understand how complicated uh, his sexuality and his personal romantic life was, which they were very, very complicated, involved affairs with both men and women. And so that part of it, I didn't really know much about either. That sounds fascinating. Okay. Can you remind us of the title and author one more time? Amanda Vale, V-A-I-L-L, and uh, the book is called Somewhere, The Life of Jerome Robbins. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Isaac Butler, author most recently of The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Claire Louise Bennett, author of Checkout 19. I read an interview with you um, where you were, I know that you used to work in theater and were an actor and wrote theater. And at a certain point, you just could not do it anymore. Um, Maybe because of a certain amount of drama and story and like a larger story, just as you speak, it, it really occurs to me that something about a fragment is that it's not necessarily enveloped in a larger story, it could be it can be just what it is for no reason, and that that something of that purity obviously appeals to you. I'm just I'm wondering. Um, and then you were saying the only the only person that you could stomach after a certain point was Beckett, which I think is interesting. I, I guess I I wonder about you know the switch from from theater to writing, and also often I notice that you have like a a very spoken way, and so in in this book, especially in the first part, it seems very spoken and meant to be, you know, spoken. Uh, And if that, just how that transition has been for you and, you know, what you've kind of taken from things that you liked about the theater into your writing. And uh, if it, if it kind of gets at the same place in yourself, um, just artistically, if you're able to kind of transmute one thing into, into a different form now through writing. Uh, Well, I've been thinking lately about uh, the theater yeah, I went off it for quite for quite some time. Again, I guess it maybe was to do with a kind of a frustration with just how I don't know human life, human relations were kind of represented. I mean, unless a play is just you know Chekhov or something, um, <laughs> I don't know. I find it a bit difficult in in a sense. I found it very. Just something very brash about it as an art as an art form, and in terms of see with with writing there, I I think what really appealed to me then about about uh, writing is that you can a character or a presence can can emerge. You can and you can kind of can play with uh, levels of presence, whereas in the theatre, an actor's either there or he isn't. But then with Beckett. 
he is sort of there and he isn't because he hide a bit of the actor, you know, so that you only see it the head or the mouth even. So that was very, that was very smart because it works. It's simple, but actually it really, really works existentially then because you don't think about that mouth or that half buried woman as a, as a woman in the normal sense, in the normal world. So it takes on a whole different dimension existentially. And I think that's what I, I find interesting. I mean, I do like the odd drama and stuff, but I'm, I guess I'm more interested in, in looking at human life on, along those lines, you know, that, that Beckett kind of explores. I'm going to see Endgame up in um, Dublin in a couple of weeks' time, and I'm, I really can't wait. I think for a while, I, I thought maybe I would be able to achieve something along those lines or something. And I, I studied post-dramatic theatre for a, a while. Um, which is trying to separate drama from performance because drama and plays and stuff, they're very literary, obviously. And there's another way of thinking about performance whereby the, the actor or the performer doesn't need to necessarily represent another human being. And whatever is coming out of her mouth doesn't necessarily have to be the speech of another person. So that's interesting. I find that really interesting. And so I wrote a few things and they, and I did a couple of kind of installation things. I started moving into, I won't say it was performance art because it wasn't really. I don't know what it was. And then when I first, when I started to write Pond, I thought maybe it would be something for the, uh, the theatre. And then I reached a certain point with it quite early in. And I thought, well, no, this isn't, this can stay flat on the page. It's, it's kind of doing enough on the page. You know, it, it doesn't need to be enacted or, you know, made life. It has enough liveness, I hope, that it can remain, you know, on the page, really. But I was thinking very much in, in terms of, you know, things like presence. I, I remember reading a very interesting book about presence. That was more of a, a model for me than, say, thinking about, you know, ca character and plot. And I was thinking about, yeah, presence and atmosphere and those kinds of things. Did that come into play during uh, Checkout 19 as well? Um, just the, the presence of the character? Or the presence of the of the narrator, shall we say? Well, I think in a, in a way, like the idea of sort of you know actually yeah making a character and how theatrical that can be, obviously came in when I was thinking about Tarquin Superbus. I don't really make characters very often. Make characters that sounds really childish, <laughs> but it kind of it is in a way like making a character. You're like, hmm, and then get it put him in this little costume and I'm going to give him this to hold and I'm going to put him in this room with these kinds of curtains. Do you know what I mean? And there is a certain joy and fun in that, um, which I hope is apparent throughout the, the Tarquin Superbus chapter, which is, which is long. It's by far the longest. Um, you know, I'm, I'm almost, there's a, almost a commentary as, as it goes along of this very process of, of making, you know, and she talks about his various accessories and is he in Vienna or is he in Venice? And, well, it changes depending on what mood he's in, because, you know, how I imagine him then, his interior uh, surroundings change and all these kinds of things. So we've laid bare quite deliberately in that chapter. And um, I really enjoyed that, actually. I really enjoyed just seeing how where his character. And, you know, that thing happened. I, I often read um, writers saying, oh, you know, they take on a life of their own. And he, he kind of did. And, and the doctor does as well. The doctor starts off as being like 300 years old and vampiric and white and weird and ghostly. And by the end of it, he's quite suave and wearing an Indian suit and smelling of 
sandalwood and he's quite fancy boy. <laughs> just like, how did that happen? Completely inconsistent. But then rather than going back and changing it, so he was the same throughout, I was like, well, no, I'll just leave that because it's kind of funny to see how my, imag- you know, my imagination and, and the time spent with him affected this, uh, this transformation. So I left, I left it in. I just find it really funny. By the end, you know, he just kind of walks off and he's not this ghostly figure anymore that just appears and disappears. He's, I mean, he has a, a scene to himself by a big tree in the dark or something. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. God love him. He got his own, he got his own character in the end. <laughs> well, I mean, actually that brings up, you know, probably the most traditional aspect of this book is that it's, it follows a girl as she becomes a woman and becomes a writer, which is, you know, it's a, a, one of the oldest tropes that we have. Um, and it strikes me that it begins with her sort of drawing a face, failing to draw a face. She can't do it. She's not doing a good job. <laughs> um, she's disappointed at her. She's disappointed her own failure. And from scratching it out, she starts writing a story about a, a young woman in a basement sewing clothes. And I was wondering what your, what, how you think about that narrative the narrative of uh, the character becoming a writer and if it's if it's also if it's your own if you feel like it's sort of your own story yeah it has parallels with my own story I guess uh, the way I think about it is um you know people say things like well did you always know you're going to be a writer and all this kind of thing and um, when did you start writing and and all the rest and there are you know there are understandable questions and so on but um what a lot of the time is sort of not being included in the frame of that question or the frame of the answer to that question is what were my circumstances? What were my, what was my situation? So what, what I felt and what was going on is one thing, but what about the broader picture? How could I actually really think about, you know, being a writer given where, you know, where I, where I lived and what my background was, how, where would I have got that notion from? Where, how would that have even in the first place come to me? And um, how how would it have been something I could have pursued? So, yeah, even though the idea seems like a very obvious sort of trope or something like that, or, you know, a story told however many times, um, I'm not sure that I've read a, a, a satisfactory um, account of it that, that takes on the, the kind of the social and economic dimensions that, I, that I've brought to bear on the experience. Do you mind talking about those? I mean, we talked about them a little bit, but. Well, just not coming, you know, just, uh, I guess, living somewhere where, you know, the idea of being a writer would, would fill your parents with horror because they're, they're thinking, well, how are you going to support yourself? It's mm-hmm. not very realistic, is it? You're not going to make any money. And, you know, they're right to, to, to well, they are right. So it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem viable. And then I, you know, I became very interested then um, in some other writers, female writers uh, from working class backgrounds, who, yeah, actually, they they have explored this in their own in their own work to some degree, such as Tove Ditlevson, um, who whose work has been uh, published, republished in English, or p- published for the first time in English in recent years, both over there in in the US and in the UK. And she, I mean, her writing on this in the Copenhagen trilogy is just absolutely. It's marvelous how she depicts it. Yeah, what what I take what I what really struck struck me is just how difficult it is when you discover this wonderful um, capacity that you have and this passion that you have, and you really want to nurture it because it feels very very kind of special and quite dear to you, and it, and it's something that you can just enjoy and spend time with, and it gives you a sense of purpose. 
and but no one else is, takes it seriously or because they, they can't really. There's very practical reasons why they can't. So it's very, very difficult. And it's something that Annie Elno also talks about because then what happens is this sort of like schism occurs and you start to feel sort of quite divorced from, say, your, your family. Um, and, and part of that is because you're having to sort of conceal a part of yourself or deny, or deny a certain part of yourself. That you feel is actually yourself, the most, you know, the most essential part of yourself. But you kind of play it down because you don't want to seem, you know, like you're trying to be smart or whatever it is. Um, so a lot of kind of internalizing goes on, and and you can't really be you in a in a way, which is, uh, and then you feel like you're, I don't know, betraying somebody or something. There's an element of betrayal that goes on too. So it's incredibly complex it's a very very difficult um uh journey it is a journey i'm not sure but it, this idea of you know becoming a writer and being a young girl and all the rest of it it's uh yeah there's a lot of complexities and and distress that it causes you for those for those reasons i'm curious for someone who's so aware of of class and like the you know the importance of um someone's background and just how it shapes them, you know, kind of as someone who, who has actually made a life as a writer, if you then grapple with this whole other thing of like, well, what, what is that doing for others? Or what is, how is that like, um, you know, aiding the, the, the class struggle or the political aspect of, of writing? Um, if, if you don't necessarily write really explicitly about politics, um, if that's something just, you know, on a day when a war is starting, all these things where I feel like, you know, the world so often belittles art. It seems like, oh, it's the first to go. It's the first for funding to be cut. Like it's not, it is just in this imaginary realm. It's not really important is, is one stance toward it. But then in, in this book, it's shown to be for this person of the utmost importance that it, it truly is life itself. Um, and I guess I'm just, Wondering if you ever reckon with that, that that kind of that tension, you know? Oh yeah, I mean, I think we all do. And in fact, it does look like today a war has started. So, but here we are talking, and and let's hope we can continue to to do so. Um, I mentioned it when I was in Norway recently. I, I went over to do a couple of events over there. It's been translated into um, Norwegian. And it was good. It was good to be there and to to meet readers and to meet writers. And I met my translator, which was and wonderful to get just this sense of this this community of just very very diverse different people and brought together from from a love uh, and an interest and a curiosity about books. And there is an expectation, I think, on writers who come from uh, working class backgrounds to maybe write these kind of gritty realist books. Certainly, as if maybe that's, I don't know, the scope of your experience and your imagination. Um, I've never really felt obliged to do that. Um, and I don't feel like I'm letting anything or anyone down by not by not doing that. I know, I mean, an, a writer like Annie Elno, for example, she writes her books very deliberately in what she calls a, a plain language so that it is accessible for people from like just, you know, regular people, workers, whatever. That's something that's very deliberate on her part. And I remember when I read that, I was thinking, oh my God, I don't do that at all. And I was thinking then about what, what it was I responded to, you know, and I don't think you can second guess your reader 
And I just find it very, very exciting to read, like right, like Anne Crane, for example, came from a working class background. She's a British writer. Uh, she died in like 1972 or something. She's mentioned a lot in Checkout 19. And her use of language is actually writers and has its own rules and logic and world and and to realise that that can come out of, you know, Brighton, uh, a working class woman from Brighton. Yeah, that's powerful. That's worthwhile. That's just brilliant. And, you know, when I was in Norway and it was great because I got to do some book signing, which I hadn't done yet because of COVID and stuff. Um, and a number of, of younger women came, you know, came to get books signed. And and one of them said to me, "I, I this really touched me because I come from... It's not like I came from poverty or anything like that. Do you know what you mean? I'm not saying that at all. It's not like I came from. And sometimes I wonder if I really was middle class, <laughs> working class in a way, do you know, because we had some, we had a nice life really. But anyway, um, it's more than that. And as the book details, it's more than just about whether or not you had a nice car and, you know, a four bedroomed house. It's, it's a lot of other stuff, particularly in the UK. I'm not sure what it's like in the US. But, um, but to feel that I'd connected with her and... And she said, you know, I've been thinking about, about leaving Oslo and she said it just, yeah, it just really inspired me. And yeah, that's enough for me. I don't need to be making any big waves, particularly. I, I just don't know whether it's even possible. I think the political machinery that we have just makes it impossible to find a way in and do anything useful, to be honest. I don't, I don't think I'd get a look in. So I'm, I'm quite content with, with reaching people kind of one by one in all the different parts of, of I mean, I, Pond was recently published in Turkey, which just amazes me, you know. I was really pleased when it was um, published in, in, I went over to um, South America where it was published and I met a woman there and she said, well, we just find it really strange here and quite exciting. You just think of a woman living on her own, you know, I suppose because there's so much emphasis on family in, in those kinds of countries. So you can't really underestimate either, you know, what, like the book testifies to itself, you know, you can't underestimate the power <laughs> that, exactly. that they have, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think that's a, a beautiful place to end with the the power of books. Um, so Claire Louise Bennett, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. That was Claire Louise Bennett. Her new book is a novel called Checkout 19. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please... Rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.